Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening, and it is a joy to see you tonight. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Mark, the first chapter. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to give our attention uh, to verses 14 through 20 as we think on the subject, building the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me extend an invitation to uh, you all and others. Uh, tomorrow morning at uh, Southeastern Seminary at 10 o'clock, we are going to be blessed to hear uh, Dr. David Platt uh, preach to us in chapel. Uh, David is a 32-year-old uh, pastor of a church that runs more than 4,000 in Birmingham, Alabama. He uh, authored a book that came out uh, last April entitled Radical uh, that challenges the church of the Lord Jesus to be radical in uh, every area of its life, especially in the area of how we live, how we give, uh, how we uh, strive against the idolatry of the American dream. Uh, amazingly, that book is on the New York bestsellers list, and it is being read widely across the evangelical world. He's a wonderful, godly man who always challenges us when we hear him preach. He'll also be a part of our Nine Marks conference that takes place uh, beginning Friday morning at 10 and going through Saturday at noon, and uh, some wonderful preachers that will be a part of that conference, including David. So just know that I want to extend an invitation to you all tonight if you can be there for any or part of that, uh, for all of it or part of it, uh, just know that you'll be welcomed at our campus But tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock in chapel. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 14 and reading through verse 20, uh, the word of the Lord says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further or farther, uh, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and uh, followed him. I want to raise a couple of questions as we begin tonight. What does it take uh, to build a great organization? Uh, what does it take to create a, a powerful movement? Uh, what does it take to uh, attract followers and, and build devotion and inspire uh, people who will give to you lifelong commitment? As I thought about that, I basically came to three uh, observations or three uh, conclusions. You need a great leader, number one. You need a compelling vision, number two. And you need at least a few good men to lay the foundation upon which you can then build, grow, and expand. Well, interestingly, when you look at the text before us this evening, you find God bringing all three of these things together as he prepares to build, expand, and grow his kingdom. We have a great leader. 
Jesus, whom Mark 1 tells us is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, we have a compelling vision. I will make you to become fishers of men. I will actually let you be a part of helping me build my kingdom, says the Lord God. And then thirdly, you need a few good men to lay the foundation. Indeed, we find Jesus uh, calling exactly that uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew in verse 16, and James and John in verse 19. And so what we see in these verses this evening is that these three essential elements, a great leader, a compelling vision, and a few good men, we see these things developed as Mark gives for us the beginning of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And as we see how it is that Mark teaches us that God goes about the business of building his kingdom. And I would submit to you that the way he began the kingdom in the first century is still the way he is building the kingdom in the 21st century as well. And so what do we see then in terms of these three essential ingredients? Number one, uh, we must proclaim the right message. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he goes to James and uh, John, and he goes to Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The, the means whereby they are going to catch men is not with bait, not with hooks, not even with a net, which is what they would have used in the first century context, but rather we will capture men for God with a compelling, confrontational, and powerful message. Now, he says there that he came after John, John the Baptist, was arrested. If you study the Gospel of John, you will discover that most likely there was a Judean ministry prior to what Mark is going to teach us about uh, this evening from Mark chapter 1. In fact, if you note chapter 1, verse 19 of the Gospel of John, all the way through chapter 4, you basically are introduced, I think, to a brief... Uh, and uh, a very quick and swift message and ministry in the southern part of Israel there in Judea, and in particular, Jerusalem. And, of course, if you read those passages, you will note that he did not receive a warm welcome. Uh, he had an immediate confrontation with the religious leaders. I believe there were two uh, cleansings of the temple, one early in his ministry, one later in his ministry. And so we see that taking place also in John's, uh, in, in, uh, John's gospel. And so Jesus then will move through Samaria, and he'll make his way back home to Galilee, where he will begin his great Galilean ministry. But he doesn't do this until John the Baptist has been arrested. Uh, the fact is, there is very little overlap between their ministries. There's continuity. Uh, they're preaching the same message. They're carrying out the same agenda to build the kingdom of God. But there's really not a whole lot of overlap between their ministries. He says there in verse 14, now after John was arrested, uh, that word could be translated handed over. Uh, it could be translated, perhaps best, delivered up. And this is what is fascinating. That same word will occur eight times in Mark chapter 14 and 15 to talk about the arrest of Jesus. In other words, John the Baptist is something, again, of a forerunner, because just as our Lord will be delivered up and put to death, so John the Baptist is going to be delivered up and put to death as well. Indeed, James Edwards, the wonderful New Testament scholar, says it this way, the baptizer is the forerunner of Jesus, not only in message, but also in his fate, which does include suffering and dying. 
Well, verses 14 and 15 summarize for us really quite well the preaching ministry of Jesus. He came proclaiming, it says in verse 14, the gospel of God. And verse 15 says, he continued, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14, he calls it the gospel of God. That's very, very interesting. It's the only time that phrase occurs in the gospel of Mark. It is a favorite phrase, by the way, uh, of the apostle Paul. And, and what is it uh, that Jesus means? And what is it that Mark is wanting us to understand when he calls it the gospel of God? Well, I think it's basically here comes the good news from God, now revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no real difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God, except that it emphasizes the source of this good news. It is from God concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus Himself will proclaim this gospel message, and as well, He is this gospel message. And there's something connected to this gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And this summarizes then, in essence, the initial phrase and the initial part of the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what one man said. God had only one son, so he made him a missionary. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. Well, verse 15 lays out for us the four essential components of the preaching of Jesus. Number one, the time is fulfilled. Number two, the kingdom of God is at hand. Number three, repent. And number four, believe in the gospel. Let's unwrap these very quickly. The time is fulfilled. In other words, the one that John said in chapter 1, verse 7 would appear, he has now come and he is here. The time is fulfilled. The word time there carries the idea of a decisive and critical moment in history. Uh, this is a very special and unique time and a very special and unique event. Uh, A.T. Robertson, the wonderful Baptist scholar who taught at Southern Seminary for many years, refers to this as the beginning of the great Galilean ministry. In fact, most New Testament scholars would agree that Jesus had a public ministry between three and three and a half years, and he would spend probably at least a year and a half here in Galilee. So perhaps six months down south in Judea, Jerusalem, when he's baptized, tempted, comes back to Jerusalem, makes his way back up through Samaria. That probably took six months, arrives here, spends a year and a half here, and then he will spend some uh, personal time with the disciples and then begin to make his way south back to Jerusalem. And his public ministry is over. Three, three and a half years. And one man pointed out that it's interesting that he spends the majority of the time away from unbelieving Jerusalem, where he is facing not uh, affirmation, but great opposition from the religious leaders who should have known better in light of Old Testament prophecy as to who he was and what he would be about. And so he returns to Galilee, and as one individual said, he basically holds something along the lines of a first-century press conference to announce his public ministry. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God, it has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we need to stop and ask a question. What does he mean by the kingdom of God? What is meant by this phrase, the kingdom of God? Of God. Well, there are a number of opinions. 
And for the most part, you can kind of break it down into two major uh, categories of individuals who have studied this phrase and concept and have come to different conclusions. Mark Strauss, a very fine New Testament scholar, has written an article entitled The Kingdom of God, Future Hope or present reality. And that really outlines for you the two major options that are out there among scholars. The kingdom of God. Are we talking about something that's completely future when Jesus comes again and establishes his thousand year reign on the earth? Is that what is meant by the the kingdom of God? Or is it something we should understand subjectively, uh, more spiritually? Uh, Is it the case that when you invite Jesus into your life, you invite the king into your life and therefore you now are a part of and are experiencing a genuine, true manifestation of the kingdom of God? Well, listen to how Strauss puts it and I'll quote him not at great length, but just for a few moments, quote, Jesus preaching that the kingdom of God was near or at hand has provoked much debate concerning the nature of the kingdom. Did Jesus preach that the kingdom was something that would arrive in the future in a dramatic and cataclysmic fashion? Or was it a present reality for those who would accept it now? Uh, Albert Schweitzer uh, claimed that Jesus drew his expectations from the Jewish apocalyptic thinking of his day which viewed God's kingdom as his dramatic intervention in the future to establish his people, judge the wicked, and establish his kingdom on earth. Schweitzer called this position consistent eschatology, since it was consistent with the apocalyptic expectations of Jesus' day. Unfortunately, Jesus was wrong. And he was nailed to a cross for his mistake. In other words, Schweitzer says Jesus believed that the kingdom was coming in his lifetime. He believed he was the great eschatological prophet. He believed that he was God's anointed. He believed that God was going to bring in the full manifestation, wipe out the Romans, establish his kingdom right then, and bless his heart. He got it wrong, and he got nailed to a cross for his bad theology. And by the way, in Schweitzer's theology, there's no resurrection. Jesus was just a screwed up, messed up, first century prophet who didn't really hear very well from God. That's how Albert Schweitzer understood the preaching ministry of Jesus. By the way, there's a professor over at the University of North Carolina by the name of Bart Ehrman who holds exactly the same view as does Schweitzer concerning... In fact, he said in one of his books, Jesus was nothing less than a first century Hal Lindsey making up fanciful stories that did not come to fruition. It's what our tax dollars help pay for. Secondly, there is the view held by a British scholar named C.H. Dodd who argued that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom as wholly present right now. Thus, through Jesus' person and work, God's eternal reign had already begun. Thus, the hope of the Old Testament prophets has been realized in history. Thus, God called his system realized eschatology. Because in his view, the kingdom has already been realized in the present. This understanding then of the kingdom is personal, subjective, and inward in focus. A a future cosmic kingdom is not in view. In other words, should we look for and expect Jesus to literally split open the sky and return back to the earth? No. 
That's first century mythical thinking. We're big boys and big girls now. There's electricity. There's jet planes. Dead people don't rise. And guys don't split up in the sky coming back riding white horses. Okay? Grow up. Live in the real world. Be a 21st century person and recognize any kingdom of God takes place in here, not out there. Well, my summation, agreeing with Strauss completely. The problem with both of these views is that they ignore much contrary evidence. And I would also add, both of the views are rooted and grounded in anti-supernaturalism. Jesus taught both a present and a future dimension of the kingdom. Indeed, the best interpretation of the data is that the kingdom has been inaugurated through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But it does await consummation in the future. In other words, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom as both present and future, as already, but also not yet. In other words, when the king appeared, the kingdom began. But the full manifestation and greatness and glory of the kingdom, when it is worldwide, that is still something we wait for at his second coming. We actually sing a song along these lines, at least we used to anyway, that was very popular when I was a little boy growing up. Uh, you'd open up your Baptist hymnal and you would sing this song that had the words, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of... Glory divine. And so, do I have him now? Yes. And if I have the king in my heart, I've got the kingdom. It, it's a present reality, but right now it's just a foretaste of that great, glorious, divine coming again. And so it is both a reality, but it is also something we still anticipate in its full manifestation. In other words, with the appearance of the Messiah King, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And it's a very popular theme in Mark's gospel. He will use the phrase kingdom of God no less than 14 times in his gospel. And what he's saying is this. The king has arrived. And men are now confronted with the reality that the king is looking them face to face. He is meeting them head on. The rule and reign of God has begun. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the appearance of the king and the preaching ministry of his kingdom? Well, basically, Jesus says there's a twofold response that better take place. Number one, repent. And number two, believe the gospel. Repent. The word means to change one's mind, leading to a change in behavior. It is something that is rational. I understand the demands of God on my life. And it also involves an act of the will whereby I turn from my sin and turn to my Savior. A few years ago, there was a, a, a teaching that was making the rounds that uh, was known as free grace theology. Free grace theology wanted to emphasize rightly the freeness and the, the giftedness of salvation but out of fear that the gospel could be somehow perverted uh, with work slipping in, it so went to a radical extreme as to negate some very important aspects of responding rightly to the gospel. And one was this. All that you have to do to be saved is believe the gospel proposition. You do not need to repent. Now, you should repent. But do you need to repent in order to be saved? And this particular theology said no. Well, there's just one major problem with that. It's unbiblical. 
The fact of the matter is, the first words out of the mouth of John the Baptist, repent. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus, repent. The first words out of the mouth of Peter on the day of Pentecost, repent. You were taught this, hopefully, when you were growing up in Sunday school. Salvation requires a, a single moment that is like a coin with two sides. On one side of the coin, it says repent. And on the other side of the coin, it says believe in Jesus. But both are essential to your responding to the gospel. You, you can't turn to Christ without turning away from your sin. And turning away from sin is what the Bible calls repentance. Repent. Secondly, believe the gospel. If repentance knows what we turn from, believe highlights who we turn to or turn toward. And it's interesting, both the word repent and believe are present imperatives in this text. The imperative tells us it's a word of command. God's not asking or suggesting. God commands you and me. You repent. Uh, he calls us to believe, to have faith, to trust. And the fact that they're in the present tense tells us it's not a one-time event. You now enter into the kingdom of God. You now enter into a relationship with the king. And you now live an ongoing life of continual repentance and continual believing and trusting and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's life-altering. Uh, it's life-changing. Uh, this is a radical transformation that will make you a brand new person. A king has arrived who rightly demands our radical faith, our radical repentance, and our radical obedience. There's the right message for building the kingdom of God. Number two, we must also find the right men. In other words, a great movement must also have the right message Added to it, it must also have the right men who will get that right message out. And so we already know from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 49, that Jesus already knew uh, Simon and Andrew, uh, verse 16. He already knew James and John, so he, he was acquainted with them. Uh, they perhaps even met him at John's baptism. Uh, they perhaps had traveled with him uh, back from south uh, into Jerusalem, Judea, back up into the north. But when they got back, well, uh, spiritual retreat time is over. Uh, our three or four or five uh, month uh, trek with him is, is over. Dad's ticked. About time we get back to our fishing business. So they come back home and they go back to fishing, which they had been doing all their lives. Uh, most likely, by the way, they were very good at this. Most likely, they had actually become very wealthy at this. These, these were not just men that just went out every now and then when they didn't have anything else to do. This was their livelihood. And we do know from the, uh, from the ancient world that the Sea of Galilee was a, a producer of fish, not only for Galilee and Judea, but fish from the Sea of Galilee was exported all over the Mediterranean world. So the odds are that they were doing very, very, very well in this particular vocation. And so Jesus, the text says in verse 16, was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, this, this big giant lake of fresh water there in the north. And seeing what they are doing, he capitalizes on the teachable moment. And he says to them, uh, come, follow me, verse 17, and I will make you to become... Fishers of men. In other words, Jesus says, I have a new vocation for you. And secondly, I'm calling you to a new intimacy with me as well. You don't just simply hear me teach. 
Uh, I'm now calling you to leave your life, leave your vocation, look at it very carefully, leave your friends and family, draw close to me, and follow me. This is rather unique in this uh, particular historical context. It was not unique uh, that there would be teachers that one would attach themselves to. But what normally would happen is you'd have a, a very famous or well-respected rabbi, and you would seek out the rabbi, and you would come to him, as sometimes it happens at the seminary, and uh, students will contact me or one of the professors and say, look, would you, would you be willing to mentor me? Uh, would you be willing to spend time with me so that I could sit under your instruction and, and learn from you? And that, that's understandable, but that's not what happens here. Uh, they didn't go looking for Jesus. Uh, Jesus came looking for them. Jesus sought them out. Jesus looked for them. And this is different. The rabbis, when you taught your students, you taught them not to be loyal to you as a rabbi. Oh, no. You taught them to be loyal to the law, loyal to the Torah, loyal to the teachings of, of Moses. No, Jesus says, you be loyal to me. You follow me. You trust me. Eventually, you worship me. Follow me. Learn from me, as he will say later in chapter 8 and verse 34, deny yourself, take up your cross, and Follow me. This is startling. Nothing like this is found anywhere in the Bible except with those sons of the prophets who followed Elijah and Elisha. That's all we have in terms of a parallel to what Jesus is now doing. Furthermore, I have in my notes written the phrase, I think it's in your notes, this, this is a grace call. A grace call. Basically says to them, come as you are. Uh, no prerequisites. Just come as you are, but come you must. Come immediately, come in faith, and follow me, and only me. Now, this is indeed a radical, radical challenge, to be sure. But again, I love the fact that Jesus is the one who sought them out. You know, it immediately hit me. It's how I got saved. It's how I came. I didn't go looking for the Lord. When I was a little boy, our church had uh, a series of revival services over a couple of years, and there was a popular bumper sticker that came out that Southern Baptists would attach to their cars or put somewhere else, and it would have the little phrase, uh, I found it. I found, and I know what they meant, I, I found Jesus. And I understand what they were trying to say, but theologically, that's absolutely incorrect. Uh, you didn't find him. He found you. You weren't looking for him he came looking for you. And so he finds them where they are, and he calls them to come and follow him. And then he makes this very interesting statement that I think is far too often not fully, not, not misunderstood, just not fully understood. Follow me, verse 17, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, most people see that phrase, and they will immediately think, well, he's just making a play on their vocation. They're fishing for fish. I'll play on that idea, and I'll turn you into fishers of men. And I think some of that is going on. I don't deny that at all. But I would also say, as is most often the case, whenever you hear Jesus teaching, whenever you hear Paul teaching, whenever you hear Peter teaching, ask the question, is there any type of Old Testament roots or Old Testament basis or Old Testament connection for what uh, I'm hearing said here or what I'm reading? And the answer is almost always yes. Not always, but almost always yes. Uh, 
And the fact of the matter is, in the Old Testament, you find the concept and the idea of fishing for men. But two different things about it. Number one, it's God who's doing the fishing for men. And secondly, in the Old Testament, the fishing for men is almost always in the context of foreboding judgment. I've given you the references. Don't turn there. Just listen as I read them for you. Jeremiah 16, verses 16 through 18. Behold, I am sending for my fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abomination. I will go fishing for them and bring judgment upon their idolatry and their sin. Ezekiel 29, 3 through 5, speak and say, thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Well, here's what I'll do, says God. I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales, and I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beast of the earth and to the birds of the heavens. I will give you as food. Amos 4.2 The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. William Lane, the wonderful New Testament scholar, gets it, I think, right when he summarizes it this way. The summons to be fishers of men is a call to the end time, the eschatological task of gathering men in view of the forthcoming judgment of God. It extends the demand for repentance in Jesus' preaching precisely because Jesus has come, fishing now became necessary. And so with Old Testament roots, we recognize a day of judgment has come with the arrival of the king. But God, when he brings judgment, almost always extends grace. And so he is now calling out new types of fishers of men who will be about the business of proclaiming his gospel and inviting men and women to become a part of his kingdom. Verse 20 then takes note that like Simon and Andrew, James and John left. And both times you see the next word, immediately. They left immediately to follow Jesus as his disciples. But what really sticks out for me is verse 20. James and John, the Bible says, look at it, left their father and the hired servants where? In the boat. Uh, this is striking. It captures in a little snapshot what it means to follow Jesus. There they are in the boat mending their nets. Jesus comes and says, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. They look at their dad. They look at the hired servants and they say, basically, we're gone. We're out of here. When are you coming back? Don't know if we're ever coming back. Now, I don't know how that hit their dad. I could imagine it probably didn't hit him all that well. By the way, I have seminary students who, in essence, have done that very thing. 
have said with grace and kindness to their parents, you know, I know I'm supposed to inherit the family business. I know your plans were for me to become a doctor, a lawyer, uh, get a business. I, I understand all that. But I believe God's called me to full-time ministry. I believe God's called me to serve His church. I believe God's called me to the mission field. And I've got students there today that were told by their parents, you walk away and we're through with you. We will cut you out of the will. Some go to that extreme. Others say, fine, go ahead and live out your foolish fantasy. Don't expect us to give you a dime. And don't you expect us to ever come see you. And I've got students that have gone through the seminary three, four plus years, sometimes five or six working their way through, come to graduation, walk across that stage, receive that diploma, and even to that moment, not one time, not one time, not one time, not even on the day of their graduation, did their mom and dad ever come to see them. Well, here's the deal, brothers and sisters. When we are called to follow Jesus... We are called to forsake everyone and everything. That may not set well with us. That may make us uncomfortable. You may think I'm overstaying the case. Well, then let me let Jesus speak to this for just a moment. And let me preface what I'm about to read by saying, don't you water down, rationalize, or try to explain away what I'm about to read as just mere hyperbole and exaggeration. Don't you do that. But I don't think that's what he meant. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Listen. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Mark 3, 33 through 35. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. But the most devastating of all, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Charlotte and I were reading this the other night in bed. And she said, that's, that's you know, I, I believe it. Boy, it just hits, hits you the, if you really take it at face value, it really hits pretty hard, especially if you like really love your mate and really love your kids and really love your mom and dad. And I said, well, honey, what, what he's saying is this. Your love and devotion to him should be so great that by comparison, it appears that you hate everything else. Your, your commitment to Christ is so great that in comparison, it is almost if you did hate your husband or your wife or your mother or your father or your brothers or your, or your best friend. What he's saying is, when I call you to follow me, I call for all of you all the time, no conditions attached. In other words, I, I like to illustrate this way. It's like Jesus gives you and me a blank contract, if you like. There, there's nothing on it. 
except at the bottom, it has a place for you and me to sign your name. And basically he says to you, you sign your name, I'll fill in the contract. That's really how it is. You sign your name, I'll fill in the contract. Well, I'd like to see the contract in advance, but then you're not worthy to be my disciple. You see, we have such a watered-down Christianity. We have such pseudo-religion in so many of our Baptist churches. It's not no, no surprise that we're not making a great impact. But I'm going to jump in deep here. It's no surprise to me that people get all excited about us rallying around a Mormon in Washington, D.C. as if he's going to be the savior of the moral plunge of America. Are you kidding me? And you have evangelical leaders talking about it as if it were a great revival meeting where all these faiths are coming together who are all spiritually inclined and spiritually motivated and spiritually concerned. Yes, and Mormons, by the way, are spiritually motivated by the devil. And they worship the doctrine of demons. And if you don't like that, I don't really give a rip. And if you're that theologically ignorant that you don't understand what's at stake, then shame on you. That you don't know your Bible any better than that. It's amazing to me where we will construct, as I'm about to get to as I close, where we will construct a, 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 a pseudo-functional Savior that is nothing less than a false idol. It's amazing to me how stupid some of God's saints can be. Jesus says, you follow me. And only me, everybody else, gets kicked to the curb. You say, well, why? Because, number three, we must follow the right master. Verse 17 and verse 20 tell us there's only one right master to follow in life and in eternity. His name is Jesus. Verse 17, he called, they followed. Verse 20, he called, they followed. Now, why should they follow this guy? Well, just look at what we already found in chapter 1 leading up to this point. The one that... They are called to follow is the Christ, 1-1, one, one, the Son of God, 1-1, one, one, the Lord, 1-3, the Mighty One, 1-7, one, the Worthy One, 1-7, one, the Baptized with the Holy Spirit, 1-8, the Spirit Anointed One, 1-10, one, the Beloved Son, 1-11, the One who pleases God, 1-11, and the One who brings the Kingdom of God, 1-15. You tell me who else can do that. Now, I can give you a simple answer. Nobody. But it gets better than that. You just go through the remainder of Mark chapter 1, and what do you find this guy doing who calls us to radical discipleship? Well, he's the astonishing teacher of 122, the one with authority of 122, the holy one of God, 124. He's able to cast out demons, 126, 32 and 34 and 39. He's able to heal the sick, 131 through 34. He's able to even cleanse lepers, and that's just chapter 1. We haven't even got to 2 through 16, and he's going to do all of that in chapter 1, and you're telling me he doesn't have the right to absolute lordship in your life and my life? No, the kingdom has come near because the king is here. And everything has changed. Nothing will ever again be the same. And so the question that confronts all of us is, what am I going to do? And what will be my response? So, conclusion. Let me move quickly, because I know our time is late. Jesus calls us to believe the gospel. Of course, one way that we continue to do this is to preach the gospel to others. But also, and I got this from Tim Keller, we need to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. He makes this great observation. When you preach the gospel to yourself, 
Number one, you will see that you are a much bigger sinner than you thought you were. And number two, you'll see that Jesus is a much greater Savior than you thought he was. Both of those are good. You need to see the terrible sinner that you are. You need to see the great Savior that he is. So how does that happen? Well, in preaching the gospel to yourselves, very quickly, number one, see and own your sin. Examine yourself carefully in the mirror of God's Word, guarding yourself against sin's deceitfulness. And I think the greatest danger to most of us is sin's self-deception, where we are deceived in terms of thinking correctly about who we are apart from Christ. Secondly, see the sin beneath the sin. I like that. Push the why question until you find whatever it is you are looking to other than Jesus for meaning and value in your life. Keller calls it, what is your functional Savior? Is it money? I'm saved if I have enough money. Is it appearance? I'm saved if I have a good enough appearance. Is it I'm saved if I have a good enough health? Is it if I'm saved if I have the right relationship with my mate, my children, my parents? What is it? That brings peace and wholeness into your life. And if it's anything other than Jesus, that is your functional Messiah. And because it's now your Messiah, it's also an idol in your life. And you're guilty of the most gross form of sin, the sin of idolatry. You're not worshiping a totem pole somewhere or a, a, a ivory Buddha. You're worshiping something that's more seductive and insidious than any of that. That then leads us to exposing the idols of our hearts, reminding ourselves idols always disappoint. Idols are weak. They can't deliver. Uh, when you succeed, they only raise the bar. They can't forgive you when you fail. They're harmful. They hurt you spiritually, emotionally, physically. They hurt others by undermining your ability to love them unconditionally. I will love you if then you've turned that person or that thing into an idol. No, you're basically saying Jesus is not enough. I also need, and you fill in the blank, in order to be happy. And again, I'm preaching to myself tonight. Observation, I am a much bigger sinner than I thought. I am a worthy recipient of God's judgment. Trying harder won't cut it. I am helpless and hopeless in myself, but there is one who can deliver and rescue, and so I flee to him and him alone. And what do I do? I repent. And I ask God to give me the gift of repentance, and I ask God to change my heart, not for a season, but for a lifetime. I then see Jesus and Jesus alone as the only true Savior, the one who lives for me, the one who died for me, the one who is raised for me, the one whose righteousness I receive by grace through faith in Him and Him alone. So then I recognize that when God sees me, I'm completely, totally, and fully accepted. So what does it matter what anybody else thinks of me? God sees me as his son, as his daughter, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel. And then from then on, I embrace the gospel every single day as my motivation for living. I know it's the gospel that saved me. It's the gospel that changes me. It's the gospel that empowers me. And it is through the gospel and the gospel alone that I can live a life that truly is a life worth living the king has come he calls all of us to repent and believe the gospel walking away from the idols of our life walking away from the former ties and allegiances 
walking away perhaps from your nets, your occupation, your friends, even your family, and to come and follow him. You say, Danny, uh, that is a great demand. Yes, but then Jesus is, after all, a great king, isn't he? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the message of repentance and faith in King Jesus. Thank you so much that the kingdom has come and that we can experience it right now, this very moment, as we trust in him and him alone. Help us to remember this night that it's just a foretaste of that great, awesome, cosmic, worldwide, uh, eternal kingdom that is going to be ours forever and ever and ever in that new heaven, that new earth, that new Jerusalem made possible by the shed blood of our wonderful Savior. And Lord, help us to realize that anything that that intrudes upon our absolute, complete, and total allegiance to Jesus is of the devil. It is sinful. It is wrong. It's an idol. It needs to be kicked to the curb. It needs to be eradicated, cut out of our hearts. And Lord, though it may sound radical, the call to follow Jesus is radical. We must even hate everything else in comparison if we're to rightly love and follow you. You are the great king. You are worthy of our absolute fellowship. By your grace, may it be true in each of our lives, beginning with me. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.